From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Here on Radio Advisory, we've talked about COVID-19's impact on physician groups as part of our financial impact series. The realities of the pandemic mean that some groups will need to explore new partnership opportunities in order to weather the storm. And at the same time, private equity firms, physician aggregators, health plans, and health systems all have their eyes set on those practices. And they're reevaluating their opportunities for partnership. Today, I want to talk about the state of physician consolidation and offer some guidance as to what we're actually expecting in the future. To do that, I've brought back Sarah Hostetter, our senior research lead for independent physician practices. And I've also brought somebody else this time, our colleague Julie Riley. She's spent a considerable amount of time researching physician practice strategy and private equity. Sarah, Julie, thanks for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It is high time that we brought both of you on the podcast to talk about this topic because this is something the three of us have talked about a lot over the last couple of months internally, but time to time to bring those conversations to the public. It's true. I feel like we're on a meeting every week or two talking about physician consolidation. What did it look like? What is it going to look like? And um, even since the last time I was on, Ray, I feel like my, my thoughts on it have changed. And I've also really just enjoyed talking to you both about it, even though I'm kind of covering new areas too. This is a nice place to, to ch- come back and chat. I want to ground us in kind of the state of physician consolidation prior to the pandemic. Sarah, I want to start with you. What kinds of partnerships were we actually seeing in the physician space? We had a lot of independent groups that were starting to work together differently and starting to get bigger. So groups that were adding more specialties and becoming these bigger multi-specialty entities potentially to compete with the hospitals in their markets. And Julie, what were we seeing in the private equity space? Private equity was also running at acquiring a lot of single specialty groups, especially in specialties where it was very fragmented, so still lots of small, less than 10 physician groups where there was a really big opportunity to make the market less fragmented. So much is changing in our world right now. So I actually want to come to you, Sarah, and ask a question that I asked you last time. Last time you were on the podcast, you shared that we were expecting a buyer's market for physicians. Is that still the case? The most important thing here is that independent physician groups are not going to go extinct because of COVID. It is true that those smaller groups that have less access to capital may not be able to weather the storm, but it's wrong to assume that this is going to be a free-for-all with everyone buying up independent groups left and right. The important thing to think about, though, is that it's It's not about it just being a buyer's market. Buyer's market implies that this is all about acquisition. And one thing that we've observed even pre-COVID is that practices are looking for partners, not just to sell their practice. So what that means practically is they are looking for support and capital and resources, but they are not looking to lose complete control of their practice. That's right. And I think what's interesting right now is that the desire for partnership, to use that language, is true on both sides, the physician side and anyone 
else in the market, other providers. And one of the things I know we've been tracking is what that interest in partnership actually looks like. So Julie, I'm wondering if you can tell us when it comes to physician practices, what types of partners are at the top and maybe at the bottom of their wish list? Sure. It depends on the type of practice. We think about some practices looking for a platform partners. These are groups that are primarily looking to latch on to a big group that has services, back office support, but maybe now in a COVID area, support like access to PPE and other things. The other type of group is already a platform and they're looking for PE to help them acquire other practices or to bring them new groups to partner with. But I think regardless of which type of group we're talking about there, one of the biggest desires is that autonomy that Julie was referencing earlier, which is who is the partner that's going to help me continue to feel like an independent group, even if I'm not on paper, while still giving me access to all of those things that Julie was just referencing. Hmm. And who is most likely to help a physician group remain autonomous? We're seeing a lot of independent groups acting as aggregators themselves, and the groups that were acting as aggregators or looking at being aggregators pre-COVID haven't slowed that strategy down with COVID. They're still proceeding with those acquisitions, maybe at a slightly different pace, but for the most part, they still plan to pursue that strategy. So if autonomy is the goal with partnership, while of course getting the capital that the group needs, who is at the bottom of their wish list? The partner at the bottom of their list is often hospitals. That's especially for the groups that are independent today, because at this point, they may have already been approached by a hospital and they've already declined it. So if they're still out there and they're still independent, it may be because they've already turned that down. I actually want to pause here because I think this is something that is surprising to folks that don't work with physicians day in and day out, is the idea that hospitals actually aren't ideal partners, especially when, as of last year, more physicians are employed in this country than they are independent. So why are hospitals seen as the bad guy? Yeah, I think a lot of physicians don't want to be told how to run their clinical operation. Frankly, they they view hospital acquisition as losing total control over all facets of their work. And so they view partners as a way to still have some autonomy, but get the support they need. And what happened during COVID is potentially a great example of this. What we saw with independent groups during COVID is that when they had volume declines and they needed to reduce the number of physicians and the number of staff, they went to physicians and asked, are you willing to take PTO? Are you willing to voluntarily furlough? So it was a decision that physicians were making on behalf of the group, whereas a lot of employed groups had to just told the physicians, you know, we need you to take PTO, you have to take PTO, or we're going to put you on a furlough. So even that that subtle difference in agency and decision making speaks volumes. I just mentioned that hospitals are kind of seen maybe as the bad guy. And that's interesting because PE, I think, is increasingly looking like a new alternative for physicians. And I say that knowing that PE is often also thought of as healthcare's kind of bad boy. Julie, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about how PE is changing the physician landscape after COVID. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've seen change in PE is 
their pitch when they approach these groups and then how they work with them afterwards. So the difference might have been maybe a decade ago, they said, hey, come to us and we'll tell you how to do everything the right way. (laughs) And we've literally been told by a lot of groups, they're coming to the group and saying, hey, we noticed that you're really good at managing a Medicare Advantage population, or you're really good at doing this thing we can help you scale that up to other practices. And so the pitch is very much, we're going to help you expand your model versus we're going to acquire you and and tell you what to do. I think this is really important because at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this idea put out in the media that a lot of physician groups were going to be desperate for support and needing to be acquired. But what you're saying is that the desire to partner actually goes both ways. It's not just physicians looking for partnership. It's also folks like private equity coming in and saying, hey, we can provide you with the types of services that you want. To that end, what are some of those attractive features being offered to facilitate that kind of partnership? Groups are looking at all of the support these groups can offer as a way to mitigate burnout. So you're not going to be focused on all of the difficult operational decisions, on the financial strain, on especially in these times, things like safety concerns, all of that. Like, what are the other ways they can support the group so that there's less burnout? It's actually easier for physicians to focus on the clinical stuff. I'm also interested in getting your perspective here, Sarah. When it comes to these kind of partners, what are the physicians actually looking for in folks like PE? We talked about this last time, but a lot of the options that independent practices got as part of relief packages were loan-based. So cash is still important to these groups. I think what's really interesting is that it's not just to weather the storm. The hardest part of the storm has hit us. Now we're thinking- You better knock on wood right now. Oh yeah, (laughs) hopefully. (laughs) But I would say even if it isn't the hardest part of the storm, Ray, groups are thinking differently about how they approach a second wave or they approach a second peak. We don't necessarily assume that all operations will totally shut down. So instead, the question is, what is the cash that I need to remodel my clinics so that I can have more social distancing in the long term? How do I make remote options for my employees feasible long term? Beyond the actual cash, right, we know that there are other investments that groups are looking to make. Are there other things that these types of aggregators are offering that's attractive to physicians? Technology is the other big one. Telehealth is a great example here. Groups had to stand up telehealth really fast, which didn't always mean picking the most integrated platform to do it. So now that we're seeing a need for telehealth persist, a need for social distancing persist, groups are starting to look at technology investments that will help them maintain telehealth in the long term, will help them better understand which patients should be coming into the clinic versus being seen virtually, help them manage and track their patients when they can't always see them in person. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Thanks for listening to Radio Advisory. It's a tough time to be a leader in healthcare right now. There was plenty of change and disruption to grapple with even before COVID-19 came along. At the end of every episode, Ray says, we're here to help. And we are. Let us know how we can help you by taking our two-minute survey at advisory.com slash pod survey. Tell us what you want to hear about, what you're struggling with, or what you think about the podcast. Talk to us at advisory.com slash pod survey.
So it sounds like ultimately some consolidation is going to happen in the physician space, but not nearly as much as we initially anticipated. And that's why this other kind of support is so important, whether it comes from a PE firm or actually any other kind of physician aggregator, folks like health plans, folks like other medical groups. But I have to admit, I am still hearing a lot of noise from individual physicians, those that are unhappy and looking to change their employer. If we aren't expecting a ton of activity at the practice level, what are you expecting at the individual physician level? We'll probably see movement in both directions that'll come out somewhere around net neutral. So you probably do still have those physicians at small practices that will need a safe harbor, but you also have physicians like the ones you were talking about who are employed by hospitals who may not be happy with the way that their health system handled the pandemic and are looking at options that will give them more autonomy or a different reaction next time. Are we seeing any players go on the offensive here and say, hey, disgruntled physician, you should actually come work for me? I've definitely seen examples of this on like LinkedIn or through various spam campaigns that I uh, am part of, where um, especially hospital-based physician groups are reaching out and sending emails like, hey, don't you want to join our group? We're better. Look at all the, all of the awesome physician leaders we have. You'd rather work for us, right? We're the better team. So I'm definitely seeing people try to attract others. And I know Chenman has been on LinkedIn saying things like how their physicians have more autonomy and more sustainable workload. So we're seeing it from kind of all over the range of potential partners and disruptor orgs. How does the potential for this individual physician movement actually shake out by generation? I'm especially curious if there's going to be an impact for those nearing retirement and those new generations coming out of medical school. Let's start with the retirement side. Sarah, what do you think? If you look at the range of jobs in healthcare, physicians were on the more financially secure end pre-COVID. They were making more money than a lot of the other healthcare clinician type jobs. Whereas we might see delayed retirement in other clinical roles, I think you're going to see less of that in the physician workforce. That being said, we do have physicians that were in the trenches in COVID and are probably really burnt out and close to retirement anyway. So why would I want to go through this again in a second wave? And the other thing that you might see happen is some folks that do want to build up their nest egg a little bit more. We saw the financial markets as a whole take a hit and retirement funds take a hit. So you could see some tinkering around the edges. Julie, how about when it comes to new physicians? I think the conventional wisdom here is that they want security and stability that might come from an employed group. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, even pre-COVID, I think the stat was something like 50% of new physicians were going straight to employed medical groups. And I don't see that changing. There's actually a survey that came out recently that suggested the market for physicians is starting to get a little bit soft too. So I think they may have less choice, which may also push them towards employed settings. Do you actually think we're going to see more people join the physician workforce? It'll stay the same or fewer join after watching an actual pandemic play out in the U.S.? Well, it's a long tail, right? Because it's like at least seven years. So, I mean. Some people are already committed. Yeah. Some people are already in the, the path. You know, healthcare consulting jobs are always available. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. Actually, that's a good point. There was some, one of the statistics that showed that like 6% of physicians are looking for alternatives. 
I also just saw that recruitment was down for physicians for the first time in a long time, which is totally counter to what we've seen the last couple of years. So I also have a question of mismatch and demand coming out of this in terms of, are we going to have people that are, as Julie said, we have this long tail seven years in who are coming out and not able to find work or not able to be as picky when, when they do find work. So we've been talking about the state of physician consolidation, but I'm cognizant of the fact that we're talking about that as of July 2020. And if the second half of this year is anything like the first, things could very well change. What variables are each of you watching that might tip the scales for or against more consolidation in the physician space? Telemedicine reimbursement all day. Actually, Ray, we were talking about that article that came up in Health Affairs, and it was showing different modeling scenarios of what would happen to physician practices, depending on whether or not they changed telemedicine reimbursement back. It's a pretty big impact, especially for primary care practices. If those go back to pre-COVID rates, I think there's a huge push for consolidation. I don't think those practices have much of a chance. That sounds really dark. Sarah, what do you think? A couple things. One is, I potentially sound like I'm just beating this drum, but what happens with the second wave of COVID? So I already have groups who are seeing cases spike in their area and are trying to batten down the hatches again. You have groups that haven't even brought back all of their staff from furlough and then are seeing volumes decline again. That's just an unsustainable pattern to maintain long term. But both of you mentioned were were things that ultimately impact costs, right? The cost of having to invest in a telehealth platform or my lost revenue because I'm not getting paid parity or because I'm not getting volumes in. I'm curious, are you seeing anything on the revenue side that you think might impact the trends towards consolidation? Probably depends on the support health insurers, health plans are willing to give, like some of the moves you see in North Carolina, where it looks like they're trying to offer support to keep independence independent. And then more broadly, value-based payment. Right now, there's a big question on how plans are going to pay for value-based contracts for 2020. And since independent groups tend to have more of their revenue tied up in value-based contracting, that revenue that we thought was secure has a little bit more of a question mark at the end. Whereas, you know, I said earlier, I think that fee-for-service went down, having value-based payment is good. But now we have questions on both halves of that equation. I think what you both are pointing out is the fact that the support structures in place for physicians, whether that's money from the federal government, from commercial plans, the loosened telehealth regulations, the voluntary pay cuts they might be taking, those are all relatively fragile. So the longer that COVID goes on, the more likely it is that one or more of those support structures will start to collapse. Totally agree. Yeah, Ray, I think that's right. I mentioned that this is a topic that is top of mind for a lot of players in healthcare. It's top of mind for health plans, for hospital systems, practice management companies, physician groups, PE firms, the whole gamut. So I want to ask you a final question. If we're talking to that wide range of audience, what is the biggest thing that you want to make sure they're aware of as they think about physician practice partnership post-COVID? Sarah, let's start with you. 
So the first thing for me is that it's really easy for someone who's less well-versed in the independent space to lump all independent physicians in one basket. An independent physician group is an independent physician group is an independent physician group, but they're hugely varied. You have everything from your five-doc practice that's primary care only to these huge multi-specialty groups with ASCs and urgent care centers. And the, the range of outcomes as well as the range of needs from a partner is really going to look different depending on where you are in that spectrum. Julie, what do you think? I feel like it's look at physician leadership. Is the amount of leadership they have the right amount? Is it sustainable? Is it effective? Because it seems like that's been a key feature in whether or not these groups work together well and achieve their strategic aims in the long run. And Ray, I know you said one thing, but can I add one more? Sure. The number one question that I'm getting right now from members who are not independent groups is, are all of the independent groups going to be acquired? And the reality is that the independent landscape pre-COVID was strong. You know, you look at an example like ACOs pre-COVID and physician-led ACOs were leading the pack. I think it's a false assumption that we're just going to see this huge rush to aggregation and employment. Instead, I'm encouraging different partner types to look at how we build up independent practices, how we work better with independent practices to make sure that they succeed in the long term, because we have a lot of data that says that care delivery is better when we have this more diverse physician landscape and when independent physicians are a part of that. And of course, if your focus is on building up independent practices, there is a lot more that all of the parties we've been talking about can do besides just outright acquire them. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, Sarah, Julie, thanks so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The state of physician consolidation doesn't look nearly as dire as some may have initially predicted. In fact, we're not seeing a big shakeup in the physician space, at least when it comes to all-out acquisition. But as Sarah said, there is a lot that every player in the healthcare space can do to build up and support independent practice. And when you set your eyes above acquisition and think about physician partnership, There's a lot that can be done to help physicians and ultimately help patients. So if you're looking to learn more, remember, we're here to help. Do you want to re-say yours, Julie? I feel like I, I don't know what's wrong with me today, but like literally I have so much cortisol flowing through my body. I can't remember what I just said 20 seconds ago. So. <laughs> it's, it's all good. 